Good to see you tonight. Thank you for coming. We're back into the book of Joshua. And we're going to read in chapter 5. And our reading starts at verse 10. Joshua chapter 5 and verse 10. We had a brief look this morning at the conquest of Jericho and the, the walls which the Lord caused to fall down. We go back a little bit in the history to this incident which precedes the uh, conquest of Jericho. So from verse 10, please, of chapter 5. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while capped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. An amazing passage. There's no such thing as coincidence in the life of the Christian. The Lord orders our steps, as the Scripture says. So when things happen, they happen because they are part of what God wills for us. And I find that the juxtaposition of events in Scripture, I find them hugely challenging. You remember that when the Passover was instituted 40 years earlier, that it was the means through which the Lord of glory delivered his people from the hand of the Egyptians and began this journey, which ends on this particular day, on this particular evening, uh, four days after they had crossed the River Jordan. Another Passover. If they had been following, and they may well have done through the wilderness, the direction of the Lord to celebrate it every 14th day of the first month, they might have thought to themselves, you know, it's, it's a long time. The promise is a long time coming. It was their own fault, of course, as we discovered a little bit earlier in our studies in the book of Joshua, because they had refused to go into the land, even though the Lord told them it was there for their taking and there for them to take. 
And I, I just love the, the grace of God, you know, to, to bring them across the Jordan with this reminder of what had happened to a previous generation as they had come across the Red Sea, released because of the sacrifice of an innocent lamb and brought into this experience of God which led to the promised land. Now, I said, yes, to you, the promised land has got nothing to do with heaven. We probably will not fight any battles in heaven. There won't be any Jerichos in heaven. There won't be any failure in heaven. AI will not happen in heaven and so on. But it is a picture of the life which has lived beyond the Jordan, of a life which has taken on a new perspective, where the Lord has brought us into a fresh experience of him. And the reminder that we need always to go back to what the Savior has done on the cross, because that's what the Passover speaks of. But the sense that each time that we share this feast together, it is with a view to the Lord using us this coming week, as he's going to use the Israelites, as we saw this morning. And it was after they'd celebrated the Passover, you remember, that they then went on to the conquest of Jericho. Because the Lord gives the victory. I can remember donkeys years ago, a well-meaning preacher saying to me when I was in my early teens, are you getting the victory? And I didn't know what he was trying to say to me. Because ultimately, this victory is that which has been achieved by the Lord Jesus. We don't get it. He has won it. Some of us don't get the fact that he has won the victory. And we don't have to constantly buckle under the temptations of Satan. But the Lord is living in you and living in me. And he lives, according to the Apostle Paul, he lives in the power of an endless life. And by his spirits, he expresses himself in our lives. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking here about sinless perfection. I don't believe in it until you get to heaven because the old man remains with us. But I, I do recognize that when you and I walk with the Lord, he gives us all sorts of experiences of him that we couldn't otherwise experience because he is the Lord of our lives and he will do with us as he chooses. So they celebrate the Passover but there's something else you'll notice which immediately follows upon that in our reading. Um, verse 11 of chapter 5, the day after the Passover. And then you have this peculiar expression, that very day. You know, as if it meant something else. But the day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. Now many folks see in this a, a a reference to the resurrection of Christ and the fact that he provides for us ongoingly. The manna was provided from God's kitchen for six days of every week for 40 years. But whenever the, the Lord is available to us as we walk on in the newness of life into which he has brought us, then it is something which we can feast on every day. And you remember the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, I am the bread of life. And then to the wider congregation, I am that bread that came down from heaven. And people say he talked about the manna. He did. He talked about the manna. But the manna ceased. The provision of the Lord never ceases. Yeah? So even though it spoke of, it spoke of the Lord uh, fulfilling the needs of the people every day as they lived in the wilderness, it wasn't actually what it was about. It was about a continuing feasting upon that which he continually provides. 
So they ate of the old corn of the land, some of the produce of the land. If you're reading your AV tonight, the correct translation is the old corn, that which had been harvested, that which was completely unavailable for sustenance to anyone who was going to feed upon it. Picture of the Lord Jesus. And that's why verse 12 then says, the manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land, the old corn of the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. You see what's happened? They've been brought into the promised land, and the provision of God is sufficient for them. Even though they hadn't planted this crop, the Lord had prepared it for them from the previous harvest. So they're on their way, and they're going to experience all sorts of new things at the hand of the Lord, and he's making emphasis upon his continual provision for them. He's giving them the land and its produce. And as you and I come into our experience of the Lord Jesus, it is that we might enjoy him. I don't know, sometimes I feel that as Christians we, we, don't, we don't enjoy the Lord. But he is who he is, this all-sufficient, glorious person that gave his life for you and me, but lives so that we, we might live in, in, in an experience of communion with him, an experience of continually walking with him, of obeying him, of taking step by step with him. And whatever the obstacle is, even though it be a Jericho, to recognize that he can handle it. I can't, but he can And so we come into verse 13. And you'll notice in their wisdom, if you're reading an NIV tonight, that the little subtitle in here is the fall of Jericho. It hasn't actually started, but it's already been achieved. You know, the Savior has conquered the greatest of foes. That's why the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 2 talks about the fact that through death, he destroyed him or annulled the power of him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver them, past completed tense. Deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So it's a new life, and that seems to be the picture that's being presented here. But the commander-in-chief, as he thought of himself, Joshua, had a bit of a problem. And you'll notice the scripture says, when Joshua was near Jericho. Now Jericho was an imposing problem. This 40-foot-high wall, 26 feet or so wide, wide enough to drive three chariots around the top of it, running abreast. You know, it was a a major difficulty. So Joshua, I suggest to you, is contemplating the difficulty, which is why the Scripture just brings this emphasis on him being near Jericho. You know, the nearer you get to a big problem, a bigger looks. Joshua was near Jericho, and there it was, this imposing city, walled city. But he did something. You know, I just love these. There's some beautiful phrases in this reading. Enjoy it later. I, I'll try not to spoil it for you. But he looked up. He looked up and saw a man. And that would suggest, obviously, that Joshua was so absorbed by this city as he looked at it, he thought it was what are we going to do? How's God going to deal with this? Yes, we've seen his power in drying up the Jordan, but that was four days ago. What's going to happen now? 
we're on the wrong side of Jordan. I can't get back. The river's back in flood. God has allowed it to come back in flood. Can't retreat. He looked up and saw a man standing. Now, does this ring any bells with you? No. Revelation chapter 1. Have a look at it tonight before you go to sleep. It'll do your soul good. Yeah? Because whenever John was given his first vision of the Lord Jesus, and remember, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not, not a revelation of unseen mysteries. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ, that particular book. And he saw, he saw someone standing in the midst of the candlesticks. Do you remember? Dead men don't stand. You know, he saw someone standing. He looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him. He hadn't even noticed him. This person didn't creep up from behind him. Yeah? He's standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. You read the latter chapters of the book of Revelation and you'll see the import of this. And Joshua went up to him and admired his courage and said, Are you for us? or for our enemies. Now, I think Christians at times carry a question like that. Lord, if you're, if you're with us, why is this happening? Are you really for us, or are you for our enemies? Because we get all sort of confused. I do. get all confused in my thinking. And I want you to take this verse home with you, and take it into your head, and, and live by it. Because what they... they Theophany, I'll tell you what that means in a minute. What the Theophany says to him is neither. There's some of our songs, particularly some of our recent songs, suggest that God's on our side. He's not on our side. He's the boss. We follow with him. We are workers together with him. He does the work, and he calls us to follow with him. He calls us to draw alongside him. So don't ever talk to the Lord from the point of view that you can tell him what to do. You know, this was what Joshua was saying. I want you to fight for us. And this theophany says, neither. Neither. But as commander of the Lord's host, of the army of the Lord, I have now come. As commander. Whenever you read the Apostle Paul's latter chapters in the Epistle to the Ephesians, he talks about the Lord Jesus being the head of the church, which is his body. You remember that phrase? Now, what does a head do? It directs the body. Yeah? The body doesn't say to the head, I want you to take me to so-and-so. The head says to the body, I'm going to take you to so-and-so. The head said to my body a while ago when I was sitting at a nice lunch and the party that I enjoyed earlier on, but at home too, after the first service. My head said to my body, if you use your knife and fork, you can get some of that nice food into your mouth. Or if you use your fingers, if you're less proficient. It's the head that directs the operation, yeah? And I think sometimes we feel that we're so indispensable to the Lord that we have to direct the operation. Nothing could be further from the truth. Remember what the Lord said to his disciples, 
or to those who are around uh, who said, well, you tell these people to stop shouting and shouting Hosanna to the son of David. He said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You know, it's, it's actually the, the functioning of the individual and the functioning of the church as a whole comes down always to this basic. Are we going to do what the head tells us to do? Are we going to respond to him as the commander? Very strong word he uses here. I understand. My Hebrew's awful. But those who know tell me this is a very strong word. It's, it's allowing Joshua no commandment position. He is the commander. He gives the commands. Commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? Now let me digress for a moment as I close. A theophany, theo is God, and phany comes from the phanus, which means an appearance. So if you have something that appears to be an appearance of God in the Old Testament, it's called a theophany, theophany, okay? So here, Joshua recognizes the Lord. Now you'll notice what he says. Incidentally, if this had been an angel appearing, the angel would have said to Joshua, don't worship me. And that's consistent right through Scripture. So anytime an angel appears to an individual and the individual wants to worship them, the angel will always say, uh-uh, I'm only here as a messenger because that's what the word angel means. But if it's the Lord who appears, the Lord accepts the obeisance. The Lord accepts the worship. And you'll see what happens here. What message, incidentally, that's a great question. Lord, what are you saying to me? What message does my Lord have for a servant? The commander of the Lord's army said, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. When did he hear that before? Hmm? Burning bush. So here in his mercy, God has given Joshua the same impetus as he gave to Moses. Take your shoes off because the place where you are standing is holy. It won't be holy after I leave. You know, don't misunderstand this. Once the Lord's gone back to glory, that place is not holy. That's why whenever uh, people go to Mount Sinai nowadays, they don't get burned up the way they would have done whenever the Lord's presence was on the mountain. Yeah? So this setting apart to God's purpose is for the moment in in this experience of Joshua. So the Lord has said to him, I've come as commander. And Joshua says, what's the message? What's the message that my Lord has for his servant? And what's the Lord saying to him? Spend a while with me, isn't he? You don't walk far in the Middle East without sandals, I'll tell you. I tried it once or twice when I was there. Your feet get cut to ribbons. So the Lord effectively is saying, look, I need to talk to you, but I need you to spend time with me. The Lord, generally speaking, doesn't speak much to people who are so busy they haven't got time to listen. And we get so busy, and I say this to my own heart, we get so busy that the thought of spending an hour with the Lord sometimes just seems too long. 
And the Lord said to the disciples, you remember, in Gethsemane, could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not spend an hour with me? I remember hearing Graham Loder preaching that years ago. And he spoke very powerfully about the fact that so often in our lives we can't give the Lord an hour. And you say, well, we do it on Sundays. Aye, but we're all together, aren't we? Joshua's alone with the Lord here. And the Lord says, look, take your shoes off. And you have this little phrase that closes this chapter. And Joshua did so. And then you have the phrase, we looked at it this morning, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. And then the Lord said to Joshua, now I'm going to suggest to you, to us tonight, that this last part of chapter 5 should really read into chapter 6 without the interval. The Lord gave the information about how to deal with Jericho as Joshua spent these minutes with him, as the Lord had revealed himself to him. Very strange instructions. But they were from the Lord of glory. And as I mentioned this morning, it appears that Joshua didn't share them with the children of Israel at all. He just told them what to do. And they marched around the city one day, and then the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. That's like your Christian life, is it? And then the next day, and then the next day. And then they really tire themselves out on the seventh day. And they marched around the city seven times. And the Lord says, well, you shout. I don't know how they felt. I really don't. I was thinking about that coming down in the car the second time today. Why do they feel? What are we shouting about? The walls are still there. Jericho still looks as strong as it ever did. But all they had to do was shout. The Lord has given them the city. But only in the Lord's directions and only in my obedience and I have so many questions, don't you? You have the sense the Lord's speaking to you. You read some scriptures and the Lord's speaking into a situation. You think to yourself, I don't know, really. And then the Lord says something to you again, and it seems that every time you read the Bible, that's the only thing you see. And then you suddenly think, well, well, well yes, okay. And then suddenly the way, up, the way opens up ahead of you and you take a step. Let me share as I close. Can I have another two minutes? Okay. Jill and I are sitting in a house that, in the goodness of God, we had, had the privilege of building up near Coalbrook, just outside Crediton. I go to preach in a little chapel in the outskirts of Bournemouth. And when I'm there, as I leave, the secretary gives me a letter and he said, there's something in there for you, which was a gift for the work I'd done that particular weekend. But it was a letter. And the letter ran something like this. I meant to look at it actually before I came out this afternoon. Couldn't find it. I think I know where it is. I'll find it when I go back. Signed by two of the elders at Pinehurst Chapel. This weekend has been an answer to prayer for us. We've been asking the Lord to bring somebody to us who would just take on the preaching and pastoral role here at Pinehurst. And though you might feel that we are laying hands on you suddenly, quoting from the New Testament, 
That's not actually what's happened. We've been praying about this for two and a half years. And we feel that somehow you and Jill may be an answer to our prayers. So I opened that letter when I got home, sitting in this beautiful house which was built at considerable expense, not by myself but by the Christians in the local area. And we looked at one another and said, what are we going to do? Is this off the Lord? Is it just a notion from these two elders? What are we going to do? We prayed about it. We prayed about it. I went back up a few months later to speak in the same church. And Stan Orman, who was laid to rest just a fortnight ago, Stan Orman said to me, Peter, what has the Lord been saying to you? And I said, well, we're three kids who are just coming up to their secondary education time. And we feel perhaps the Lord has his hand in this. And he said, well, how are you going to respond to that? Stan was very direct. I loved him greatly. And I said, well, I suppose we'll have to put the house on the market and see what happens. And that was the hardest statement I'd ever made. Because this house had been provided, as I say, at the expense of others. And they'd given it to us. Then one of the fellows who had been responsible in the early days of the building project phoned me the following week. He said this. He said, Peter, I feel you're wrestling with some problem which might be to do with the house. All you need to remember is it's not yours, it's the Lord's. So we put the house on the market that week. It's so hard, you know. Didn't find it easy. Still often think of the fields around the, the house of Colebrook, the sheep, the enjoyment we had. And yet I don't regret a day that we left it to do what we felt the Lord was setting in front of us to do. I have no idea why that came to my mind tonight. But if the Lord's telling you something and it's beginning to crystallize in your mind, someone to speak to, someone to pray for, someone to visit, some particular issue that's that's high on your agenda at the minute. Lay it out before the Lord. Do a Hezekiah, you know, open the letter. And say, Lord, I don't know how to handle this. But I know that you know. And he does. And our life is a life of faith after all, isn't it? 